Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 101 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, November 27th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Do you know that Armageddon is nigh? Armageddon? Armageddon. That's terrifying. And I, I don't <laughs> what just, do you mean? Well, I don't mean the, the Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, Billy Bob Thornton Oof. movie from 1997. I'm really glad to hear you don't 98? mean that. 98? Either way, it was a terrible movie. <laughs> um, so the World Chess Championship, right, between uh, Norway's Magnus Carlsen and the U.S.'s Fabiano Caruana um, is, like, super deadlocked. And so apparently, eventually, like, the way they finally break the deadlock, if they're still deadlocked by, I don't know, sometime tomorrow, is with something called Armageddon. I had no idea. Which is where um, white gets five minutes, black gets four minutes, and a draw counts as a win for black. Oof. And the lots are drawn, no pun intended, to determine who gets which color. So that's a pretty bizarre way to re- resolve things. I mean, uh, I, think, I think it's like the shootout in the NHL now. It's like, take a sport that classically ends in, you know, that could easily end in draws and make it impossible for it to end in a draw. You know, I feel like sometimes when it's, it's something like this, it's protracted to that extent. Maybe it really is a tie. So like the like the Texas A and M LSU game on Saturday night. Okay, so I, I was watching it with my father over Thanksgiving. I, and I, I quit on college football around about the middle of the third quarter of the Michigan Ohio State game on Saturday. Oh yeah, you're a Michigan fan. So sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah so well, it was, a, it was a very exciting game. But I, my dad and I turned it off after LSU appeared to intercept it to end it in regulation. Right when Ed Orgeron got Gatorade dunked on him. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought it was all done. I woke up next morning and couldn't believe my eyes. You missed all seven overtimes. Not to mention the post game fight. Indeed. Oh, there's that. All right. Well, uh, so it's We're it's been a week Washington. off. Yeah, was that our first week off we've really taken? No. Yeah, but it's been a long time. We uh, last recorded live in Washington. Thank you so much to our good friend, Professor Jen Daskal, and the good people of American University's Washington College of Law for hosting, and especially all of you awesome listeners who turned out for it. Um, I think it's fair to say uh, we all had a pretty good time. It was you know, as advertised in terms of low production value and, and screw hey, out. Have, have you listened to it? I thought the audio no, came out pretty good. No, well. no, it, it, it sounded good, but that, they all got to see. That everyone, was a shot at the producer, man. Everyone, no, no, no. Everyone who was there got to see how this thing comes together. And it, I suspect it was exactly as you all imagined. Duct tape and bailing wire, baby. Yeah, exactly. In, including me. Uh, despite all your admonition, showing up at the wrong location. Yeah. And including me getting something wrong, which seems to happen sometimes. So uh, I, I should say, though, um, so I, when we were talking about the, the, the commercial tort exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, I actually had confused an earlier version of JASTA, the Just Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, with the later one. The, the whole tort rule actually is still in effect for non-JASTA claims, it's only abrogated by JASTA for those specific international terrorism-related suits. So does that actually signify, does that actually bolster the argument yes. then? Because the, yeah, the, yep. the whole of the tort rule had been d- debatable as a matter of statutory yep. interpretation, but no, the decision it, yeah. to abrogate it expressly as to one category of cases seems to reinforce the claim and, and that it to, does apply to, to the others. For, for folks who don't remember that 20-second discussion from two weeks ago, under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, one of the ways that you can sue a foreign sovereign in U.S. courts is if there's a tort committed where the whole tort takes place on U.S. soil, and the tort relates to particular commercial activities by the foreign sovereign. And we have this one prior case that involved a hacking incident yep. where the court said, look, you can't you can't sue that foreign government because at least part of the orchestration of it and the intent took place abroad, even though the effect was had within the United States. So for, for those of you who are who are FSIA aficionados, and I'm looking at you, Shemen, uh, our friend Shemen Keitner at UC Hastings, my bad. Um, this is what I get for not going back and checking my notes. Yeah, it's bound to happen from time to time. Like I assure you, week. I will outdo you. Um, okay, so this week we've got a ton of interesting things to talk about. Uh, first, we'll have a, a pair of topics under the heading of border wars. Border. We've got some stuff going on uh, at the border oh. in San Diego and Tijuana. First, we'll talk about the tear gas incident. And uh, second, we'll talk about the so-called cabinet order on uh, rules of engagement, if you will, or Bob, yeah, mission. I, I hereby issue a cabinet order of my own. Uh, what, is your, what is your cabinet order? I don't know, be, but sir? it has the same legal force as John yeah. Kelly's. I, I don't think I don't. Think, <laughs> I don't think you should issue it yourself. You should have your chief of staff issue it in your name, or just do I have in his chief, or her? Do name. I have a chief of staff? Well, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> More likely the other way around. I'm not, your chief of staff. Uh, uh, 
Premier into Paris. Um, <laughs> all right, Russia. We've got Russia that's, stuff. That's too early for Latin. Um, we've got the seizure of the Ukrainian <coughs> ships and the Excuse detention me. and apparent prosecution of the Ukrainian soldiers. So I've, we'll have a lot to say about that. Although uh, apparently the U.S. government does not have a lot to say about that. Uh, well, at least I suspect the State Department might, even if the White House hasn't doesn't. yet. You know, the only you know, there's exactly one Trump administration official who has said a, a word publicly about this so far. Uh, who's that? Nikki Haley. Uh huh. Well, that didn't surprise me. She's got a track record of being strong on the uh, Russian. Yeah, she's also on her way out the door. Well, the person rumored to replace her, and we'll see if that pans out. But Heather Nauer uh, at State Department has a statement this morning on something else, but it's related and it, it reflects uh, Heather Nauert's sort of similar tradition of being uh, more traditionally strong and on the Russia issues. And this has to do with something we'll explain involving a would-be and now thwarted extradition of Russian uh, arms dealers from Hungary. Uh, th- then we'll pivot to some litigation updates. Uh, Steve, there's stuff happening in this place called the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, you know, there's, there's, the, the Solicitor General has been very busy. We're going to talk a bit about some of the, the strange moves the Solicitor General has made in both some national security-related and non-national security-related cases. Um, most, I think, prominently filing last Friday a petition for something called certiorari before judgment in the three ongoing challenges to the uh, new so-called Mattis policy limiting the service of transgendered individuals in the military. Wow. Okay. So then we'll pivot from that over to the Justice Department and look at some developments in a trio of recent terrorism prosecutions. Uh, brief notes on Exciting all stuff. It is. Uh, and if that's not enough, we will remind you that, in fact, there continues to be an, an AUMF-covered uh, assertion of authority to use lethal force in the form of drone strikes in Somalia, Whoa. Yemen, um, Pakistan, and other places. We're going to take the as a springboard uh, a really interesting article from Spencer Ackerman on the, at the Daily Beast on Sunday night, um, and we'll, we'll kind of hit some of the highlights from that article and reflect on what uh, what seems different or not different uh, in light of all that. But it is remarkable, you know, how little we talk about these goings on these days, which I think was rather one of the key points of Spencer's article. Quite. Uh, now, that's all serious stuff. We got to be frivolous as well. Uh, what kind of frivolity do we have in store? So, you know, we have had, we have talked before about um, the sort of the, the endless debate over what is and what is not a Christmas movie um, and whether, of course, Die Hard is the all time Christmas movie. We thought we would pick out a very specific holiday movie um, and, and, Engage with some of the debate over whether it's wonderful or terrible. And that movie is Love Actually. It is actually, oh, I won't say yet. Love, so, but, it's but, either actually awful or but, actually but, wonderful. But the, the frivolity. Love Actually, colon, friend or foe? To me, it is perfect. <laughs> well, I wish, you know, he's shaking his head at me, y'all. There you go. He's just rolling his eyes. I think we know where he's going to come down this. Sounds like we'll have some debate. It's complicated. It is complicated. All right. Um, let's go to the border wars. Uh, tear gas at the border. Uh, most listeners probably know by now that um, we have had the the arrival in Tijuana of uh, the large group of mostly, if not exclusively, Honduran, I believe, immigrants who have migrated the way up through Mexico and have now uh, arrived at the border and they, they are seeking asylum, but are obliged to uh, wait their turn because the number of people that can be processed for asylum, as I understand it, uh, that port of entry is in the area of, you know, 100 or hundreds per day. And so that the ability to make the application on the Mexico side, which is what the administration wants, is, is as they say, metered at, at, a, at most Standard a few hundred. Yeah. Um, although, and, although we should point out that under federal law, you do not have to, like... Presenting yourself at a port of entry is not a prerequisite for applying for asylum. Right. So you'd have to get, I mean, there's a practicality here to apply, yeah. to literally apply. There's there's a formal way to do it, and it's to present at the port of entry. Only a few hundred at a time can do that. Others, so some in the group, I uh, don't know how many, uh, but who did not want to wait further, made for the fence. And then this resulted in the use of tear gas, apparently at, at two at least two separate points along the fence line. And, and that, of course, has set off a, a vast amount of uh, commentary. So let's talk about this. Uh, maybe the first thing to say is that whatever we say about the legality of it doesn't mean anything about the wisdom or morality or, or, or propriety of it. That Those are separate questions. Um, so, Steve, uh, was it legal? Illegal? Do you have a strong view on this? Uh, we don't. I guess my, my gut react. my first reaction is we don't know yet. 
And here's the problem. So as as listeners know, I represent um, a plaintiff or the plaintiffs in a case pending in the Supreme Court about a cross-border shooting um, where the officer's entire claim for why he fired his gun at this 15-year-old Mexican national who turned out to be unarmed was that he, the, the victim and his friends were throwing rocks at the officer. And it turns out that there is cell phone video evidence that that's not true, that the officer was lying. Um, the claim in this case is that the CBP officers fired tear gas in response to being assaulted with rocks and other projectiles. And my, you know, I guess I, I am visceral, I, I react to that viscerally because of my experience in the Hernandez case, that just because CBP says rocks are being thrown at them doesn't necessarily mean rocks are being thrown at them. Because there's a fact question yes. about whether the, the provocation... Uh, but there has to be a provocation. So under, I mean, the relevant regulation is 8 CFR 287.8. Um, and it allows, I mean, it clearly allows CBP officers to use force whether to protect themselves or to defend U.S. territory, if they are in fact provoked, so there's a fact question about whether the provocation justified the use of force. Okay, so one po- let's let's map out the different possible illegalities that are in question here. One you just identified is a regulatory violation mm-hmm. that they may have violated their own, in effect, rules of engagement by using force. If, as you speculate, might be the case if the provocation wasn't as they said. Yep. Of course, it's it, it's certainly possible the provocation is as they of said. Of course it is. That would take off the table the, the regulatory violation, presumably. Yep. Um, other possibilities? Now, your, your, your litigation that you referenced earlier is, is a constitutional claim, isn't it? So uh, this would presumably face the same obstacle if... if if someone tried to argue that this violated the Constitution, you'd have the same question of, do these non-citizens not physically located in the United States have any uh, ability to invoke constitutional rights? It's the, it's the same question in the abstract, isn't it? Yes, although I would just say that in our litigation, we have assumed that the constitutional violation begins with the regulatory violation, right? That it is the violation of 8 CFR 287.8 that makes the force unconstitutionally excessive. Um, well, that's okay. That may or may not be the right metric on the. No, no, but but my point is just that, like, I I at least I at least think there's a meaningful dis- like to my mind, right? If the office, I mean, one could one could ask whether two eighty seven point eight authorizes force in violation of the Constitution. That's a different question to me than whether force in violation of two eighty seven point eight is unconstitutional. You see what I'm saying? Well, I guess what I'm saying is that even if we stipulate that there was no provocation. And therefore, the regulation wasn't properly followed here. Um, that won't cut any ice as a constitutional matter unless you oh, begin right. with the premise that they have constitutional that's rights. Right. And that is that is at least somewhat of an uphill battle. No, no, listen. I, I think if the, not, a very uphill battle. I think the far bigger legal issue is firing tear gas onto the sovereign soil right. of a foreign So let's country. move on. So we've gone through the regulatory and the constitutional levels. Yeah. Um, no particular statutes come to mind is obviously relevant here. Uh, international law, there's sort of a trio of major categories we could look at really briefly. Uh, UN charter issues where the complaint would be Mexico's complaint. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, possible chemical weapons type arguments that some people have been raising, we'll, we'll note that. And then uh, possible human rights law arguments. Uh, maybe the, the quickest and easiest one to dispose of, in my opinion, would be the uh, chemical weapons, uh, law of armed conflict style arguments. It is true on one hand that... Uh, Right control agents, as a matter of customary international law, I think it's fair to say, uh, right control agents can't be used as a method of warfare. That's reasonably well established. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it, for example, in Rule 75 of the Red Crosses, uh, the International Committee of the Red Crosses study of customary international law. And there, there's plenty of basis for believing that. Um, but it's also clear that in in when the Chemical Weapons Convention was being negotiated, this was talked about expressly, about whether uh, in addition to banning riot control agents as a weapon of war, uh, they should also be banned more generally. And there was an express decision not to extend that rule to uh, purposes of law enforcement, non-armed conflict scenarios. Uh, I think it's relatively well established that there could be problems in a non-armed conflict setting in using a riot control agent because of the particular means or, or application of the riot control agent, but it's certainly not per se barred. Unless you have, in other words, a strong argument that this was an armed conflict and this was used as a weapon of war, which I think is on its face a, a silly argument applied here, not the case at all. You, you don't have a chemical weapons convention problem. You don't have an armed conflict problem. The possible problems from an international law perspective then would have to be either a human rights law argument or a UN charter argument, as we noted a moment ago. 
on human rights law. Uh, there is no human rights law instrument that the United States is, uh, to which the United States is a party that says you can't use uh, tear gas or other riot control agents uh, if you're using them otherwise properly. The question would be under the ICCPR, which is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or maybe the American Convention on Human Rights, under some notion of human rights law that might be binding on the United States in this scenario, uh, is there uh, some other right, like a, a, a right to, uh, you know, a right to liberty or a right to uh, life or light, a right not to be subjected to cruel and human degrading treatment, that sort of thing? Could you argue that those rights are violated in the particular application in this case? Um, I'm, I'm sure some will make such arguments. That does not strike me as a particularly strong argument. So that leaves, uh, do you disagree or no? I mean, on any of that? No, I mean, I, mean, I, think, I think we are... I think, no, I agree with all that. I think the, the, it's, it's not the tear gas that's driving me nuts here. It's the policy, right? It's the, it's the change in asylum policy, sure. which, which is arguably inconsistent with our obligations under the 1951 okay. UN Refugee well, Convention. But let's focus on the tear gas. I understand that. I just, one more but bit. I just think, I, I, okay. So we got the UN Charter issue. We got the UN Charter issue. Is there, is there anything uh, in the nature of the projectile being, projectiles being launched into Mexico that gets us to the point where we can say there's some sort of sovereignty violation. Um, the usual way to think through this is to kind of begin at the, the top tier and work our way down. Is it an armed attack or a use of force uh, within the meaning of the UN Charter under Articles 2-4, Article 51? Um, and you could, you know, you could see where people make arguments. Um, I don't find it particularly uh, compelling. Um, in fact, I don't, I don't think it's a particularly good argument. If you don't think it's a use of force or an armed attack on Mexico as such, is it at least uh, prohibited intervention? Um, it's certainly not coercive intervention in the sense, or at least I don't think it rises to the level of coercive intervention in the sense of the Nicaragua decision. Um, once you get below that level, there are there's lots of room for debate about whether and to what extent there is an actual crystallized rule of customary international law that prohibits in sort of a more general territorial <coughs> infringement uh, per se way, the protection of sovereignty. Um, does, would, none of which is to say Mexico has nothing to complain about if they want to complain. Uh, to complain, They certainly can complain, but I, I think that the legal arguments as you run through them all end up not going very far. Uh, on, on the use of tear gas, sure, but only in the sense that, that the arguments used to be Mexico, that, that Mexico routinely complains about U.S. operations over the border and that never goes anywhere. Hmm. So uh, obviously none of that is is in any way prejudicial to the separate issue which you wanted to focus on, which is the uh, the overall approach the administration is taking to try to limit the ability to invoke asylum. Well, it's not just that, but also to change public understanding of what asylum is, right? So there's this narrative that President Trump is repeatedly peddling and that Secretary Nielsen is complicit now in peddling, that the only way you can legally apply for asylum is to show up at a port of entry and present yourself and wait your turn. That's not the law today. It hasn't been the law since the INA was enacted. It is not consistent with the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. So, you know, the... Asylum is something very special. The idea behind asylum is that if you are fleeing persecution or fear of other forms of cruel and human degrading treatment, like all kinds of horrible things, the kind of things that would push someone to strap their children to their back and walk through, you know, 2,500 miles of Mexico, um, you don't have to follow procedures. Right, and we didn't. I mean, the, it's not like throughout American history we've only had legal immigration. We've recognized this principle for decades, but all of a sudden, no, we can't recognize it anymore. Is it fair to say that historically, though, you did, as a practical matter, you, you had to get to the United States sure. or to a place the United States has established across the border, like in at the port of entry, so that you can actually present the claim. You you can't just uh, show up. Or could you? I don't know. Could you show up at a consulate or an embassy uh, without leaving your own country and say, "I'm I'm here to seek asylum"? The obligation the obligations were different, right? Because you the government did, we don't have an affirmative obligation to give you a visa um, from another country. Mm -hmm. Now um, the there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of discussion about out there about how well Mexico offered some of the caravan participants asylum that therefore precludes them from applying for asylum. This no, that's false. That is not the law. Um, the law says that if the United States has something called a third country agreement, 
with the other country, that that could then be used as a bar for eligibility for asylum. We do not, at least as of today, have a formal third party, third country agreement with Mexico. Interesting. So I guess part of my reaction here is, you know, President Trump is using this issue to work up his base and to stoke, to me, the worst forms of anti-immigrant and to some degree racist sentiment, when all that's really going on here is a humanitarian crisis in Central America taxing our asylum system. The right way to deal with that is to boost the resources of our asylum system, not to deploy the military, not to fire tear gas, not to turn, not to close the, you know, the border between San Diego and Tijuana. I mean, there are, you know, huge commercial ramifications to that. So I just, to me, this is a perfect example of a serious policy problem that has serious policy solutions, but that President Trump is insisting on demagoguing for partisan political purposes that have distinctly racist and anti-immigrant undertones, and it bothers the hell out of me. Well, that, that segues nicely to the other part of our Border Wars uh, topic, the cabinet order on um, the mission and rules of engagement for uh, the military. Uh, obviously, we have about 5,800 uh, federal forces deployed to the border at a extraordinary cost, I, I would emphasize. Uh, last week, Tara Kopp at Military Times broke a story, at least I believe Tara broke it, mm-hmm. uh, reporting that a, quote, cabinet order had been issued, uh, signed by uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly, interestingly, stating that military personnel may, quote, perform those military protective activities that the Secretary of Defense determines are reasonably necessary, close quote, to protect custom and border uh, uh, patrol protection. Uh, protection. Protection. Still want to say Border Patrol. Uh, Custom and Border Protection personnel, including, quote, a show or use of force, including lethal force where necessary, crowd control, temporary detention, and cursory search, close quote. Uh, I guess my first question for you, Steve, is what's a cabinet order? Uh, a piece of paper that says cabinet order on it. <laughs> it's an order that someone wrote down from the cabinet room? I must just be clear. The Secretary of Defense, there is no statute. None. There is no constitutional provision that puts the chief of staff in the chain of command over the secretary of defense. The chief of staff is an employee of the executive office of the president, an important one, but one vested with zero statutory or constitutional authority over the military. Yeah, this this is really weird. I mean, how do you decode? Really weird is not strong enough. Wh- why this is, is ridiculous. Okay, so riddle me this, Batman. So <laughs> clearly, you know. Does that make you Robin? Uh, I guess so. I guess Ooh. so. No, wait, no. I thought real me this was the Riddler. Oh yeah, saying that. touche. Yeah. Um, so Trump, no doubt, was perfectly happy with and pleased by this document. Uh, I assume. So why isn't it just an executive order or presidential directive or simply a military order from the commander in chief? Why is it coming only from the pen of John Kelly, who presumably is not just you know freestyling here? Yeah, you'd have to ask him. Yeah, okay. So, but, but just, but, he, John Kelly, you're invited on this show. But Call just, in. But just, I mean, just to be clear, there is no such thing as a context in which the White House Chief of Staff has the author- has the legal authority to tell the Secretary of Defense to do anything. Uh, exactly so. Now, interestingly, this, this language, cabinet order, it does have connotations. I mean, at least to my ears, it sounds like some sort of vague reference. It's It almost sounds almost like a parliamentary you know, order in council or something. It, it sounds a lot like the language of orders in council from mm-hmm. the, the UK system. Oh, good. We're back to the Privy Council. There you go. We have a Privy Council or order. Uh, so suffice to say well, that but, uh, but, it's but, not but, clear what... It, what effect, if anything, a document signed by the chief of staff purporting to tell the secretary of defense means other than insofar as it's somewhat reasonably reliable evidence that the president himself maybe wants this certain outcome as a matter of policy. But it's not an order that actually binds as a matter of the commander's uh, commander in chief's proper chain of command uh, directives. Right. No. Now, there's also the question of whether, insofar as the order has any legal status, it violates the Posse Comitatus Act. Indeed so. Okay, so we can set it all aside because insofar as there is a uh, problem, as there obviously is with it being a John Kelly order, it could just as well be an order. Let's assume Trump had simply issued it the proper way in his own name. Or that or that Mattis interprets it, right? That, that Mattis says, yeah, just, I'll take I interpret that as evidence. this as, a, as a verbal order from the President right. of the United which States. Which is what I kind of meant by treating it yeah. as evidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now, in Speaking of Mattis, he's made clear he's not actually doing anything in response to this. He has made clear that uh, CBP has not asked him 
to do anything to protect their forces. Well, they, ha- well, they, they have deployed the troops. They yeah. have they have taken fifty five hundred troops yeah, away from yeah, their families that, that and their it, other you know. Well, their, stay, stay focused. That none of that has to do with this so called cabinet order that it already occurred. No, it has to do the with question, the broader Shonda that is this whole operation. One problem at a time. All Let's right. focus on the cabinet order. The cabinet order purports to open up what you just described as a posse comitatus problem. Mattis has said, um, you know, CBP hasn't asked me to protect their troops. If and when I'm asked, I will consider that. And he's made clear that nothing. He, he's repeatedly said, people don't need to worry about this. Nothing's happening. Nothing to see here. Uh, at, at a practical level, that's comforting. It doesn't address the uh, the impropriety of, or the potential impropriety of the White House potentially signaling what could be a posse comitatus violation. Now, assume that in fact it was a presidential order and that Mattis is is duly implementing it, and in fact they were planning to do what's it? Uh, cursory searching, uh, brief detentions, possible use of lethal force. Is that in fact a posse, comit- posse comitatus violation? Uh, it's close. I mean, so, so let's just go back to the law here. So Posse Comitatus says that you can't use the military for ordinary law enforcement um, unless there's some kind of statutory or constitutional authorization for them to do so. What's described there sounds to me like ordinary law enforcement, right? I mean, searches, detention. Stop and, search, stop right? and frisk. I mean, now, obviously, in a, in a battlefield context, I wouldn't call that law enforcement, sure. right? If we were right. capturing combatants and searching them and detaining them— that's not law enforcement. No one's arguing that's what this is. Exactly. So yeah, I agree completely. So so it seems to me that like that that you know what is going on here is um, the chief of staff basically encouraging with no lawful authority to do so the Defense Department to violate the Posse Comitatus Act. Now, mind you, the the remedy, right? So I mean, you know, uh, uh, what what if they threw a Posse Comitatus violation and nobody came, right? I mean, um, <laughs> it's a tree and the fallen in the forest, no one listens. Well, because here's the problem. So the the historically, I mean, the Posse Comitatus Act is actually a federal criminal statute where violators are supposed to be prosecuted. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. So, you know, some courts have struggled over what the remedy is for a Posse Comitatus violation. Usually, it's like suppression of evidence in a criminal mm-hmm. case. These aren't going to be criminal cases. Well, and, and, and it does seem like nothing's actually going to happen. But I think you're right. There's The, the takeaway is there's not a, uh, a de minimis or briefness exception yeah. to Posse Comitatus' no. prohibition it's on law enforcement, enforcement activity. Um, and you can try and, and, to get, I, and I'm unaware yeah. of any statute. I'm unaware of any statute that allows military deployed in this context to conduct those functions outside of a logistical support capacity. Right. Well, they, they do have, and in, in I think we've emphasized previously, yeah. the military has plenty of permitted roles by way of support. And so a lot of what and what the 5800 are actually doing yep. all does sound perfectly compatible with that. It's just this bizarre gesture from the chief of staff of this document, which leads me to say that, in fact, this whole thing is, is theater. For mm-hmm. the reason you said earlier, part of this is to stir people up. And I think the, cap, the so-called cabinet order is some weird sort of way of trying to signal, hey, look, yet another indicator to kind of keep the story fresh. We're very, very, very tough. But tough me, on this issue. But meanwhile, taking all the attention away from what to me are the rampant, flagrant violations of U.S. and international law governing the rights of potential asylees. Which, which is entirely in keeping with the idea that this is, this is symbolism. And, and by your account, it's, it's got multiple benefits from the White House's perspective, useful politically, yeah. and, it, and it also changes the narrative. Now, meanwhile, I mean, we should note. I, I think are, are we? Is, I don't know. If, is litigation next, or are we? Doing, uh, let's do Russia next. So, so before, so let me just put, lay down a marker. Um, there is already an injunction against the purported change that President Trump has promulgated to federal asylum rules that would limit you to apply to asylum at a port of entry. Um, a federal district judge in California um, issued an injunction last week. Actually, this was the injunction right. that provoked the whole thing we're going to talk judges, about. Obama Trump judges, Obama judges. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so yeah. Like so, we and we noted during our show in Washington two weeks ago, show one hundred, uh, that there was some possibility. We we talked about this under the heading of yeah. Attorney General or Acting Attorney General Whitaker. Whitaker. One of the cases that could put in issue his is uh, this one. Yeah, because yeah. he actually co-signed the directive yep. with DHS. Yep. Uh, if he's not properly the acting attorney general, then that's a whole separate reason why that. Yeah, although although directive the, although, secretary, asylum, although secretary Nielsen's signature is still on the directive as well. But is it sufficient just to be hers? I don't know. I thought it had to be exercised jointly. It might be. In which yeah. case, there you go. 
Yeah. All right. So onwards to, to Russia. Okay. So the Russians have been speaking, busy. Speaking of other areas where President Trump seems uninterested in what's actually happening. Yes. There's a there's a there's an issue brewing, and it's really serious stuff in Ukraine. Uh, like really serious. Yeah. This this uh, could lead us to a new a new round of, of more overt conflict. Uh, in addition to the uh, sort of shadow war that's continued in uh, Ukrainian territory as Russia's continued to nibble at the territorial edges after having. Biden, after having bidden off the Crimea, um, when Russia seized and, and basically conquered the Crimea, um, this created a, uh, a logistical question about access for the Ukrainian fleet uh, into the Sea of Azov. Um, the Sea of Azov is, is reached from the Black Sea and only from the Black Sea through a narrow strait known as the, the Kerch Strait. Um, and when the Crimea is Ukrainian. The Kerch Strait has Ukraine on one side and Russia on the other. It's very narrow. There's, as I understand it, a bilateral treaty between the Russians and Ukrainians treating that categorizes the Sea of Azov as an internal sea of both Crimea and Russia, which I, I'm no law of the sea person, but I gather. So it's not international waters. Right. It's a binational territorial sea. sea. Yep. Uh, but the most important point is the treaty seems to provide rather clearly the, uh, for Ukrainian access to the sea. So now the Russians have taken both sides of the strait. They've now built this bridge across it. And obviously, this is all part and parcel of, of a larger plan to continue that territorial consolidation and eventually, notwithstanding the treaty, uh, squeeze the Ukrainians out. Um, three Ukrainian naval vessels, and I believe, but I'm not 100% certain that they were Ukrainian Navy vessels, not just uh, Ukraine flag right. ships, um, were transiting the strait. The Russians put a, a cargo vessel across the strait under the bridge. And then rammed and fired upon and seized and captured and took into custody the sailors on the three ships. See, ramming is not always a good thing. See, yeah, the ramming keeps coming up. We're quite the theme. Um, so these <coughs> these, sold, these sailors. By the way, I should apologize for all my coughing. I'm fighting this nasty uh, cold. That's Steve, why that's why Bobby's on on fire today. See, <laughs> I've got you while you're weak. This yeah. is great. I'm feeling fired up. I'm, I'm even more encouraged now. Um, it's been reported that the uh, the Russian a Russian court in the Crimea has already charged and remanded for two months detention one of the sailors and they're planning to prosecute the other ones as well or at least so they are saying in part of the the, the public brinksmanship they've also put on Russian state TV uh, what were pretty plainly coercive interrogations or coerced statements by these captured sailors uh, so. In addition to the general seriousness of this and the risk it'll spill over into much bigger things with Ukraine now declaring martial law apparently in some 14 provinces in the eastern part of the, what remains of their country, um, I think this is clearly a situation where you have the military forces of one state firing on the military forces of another, indeed seizing military vessels, taking prisoners. I think these sailors are POWs. I think that it is clearly illegal to put them on TV and display them, let alone to put them under some sort and, of And arrest. we should note, my understanding is that both Ukraine and Russia are parties to the Geneva Convention. Oh, certainly so. Absolutely so. Um, and and for that matter, these people cannot be prosecuted because there's no allegation of a war crime here. Any any prosecu- I believe the charge in the one case that's bubbled up so far is illegal border crossing into Russia. Which, of uh, course, is flatly inconsistent with the treaty to which Russia and Ukraine are parties. Yeah, even... And even if you didn't have that, all of this seems uh, pretty clearly to be uh, in violation of so, the laws of war. So let's talk about the dramatic U.S. response. Yeah. Crickets so far, huh? So, I mean, I, I got into a fight with someone on Twitter about this over the weekend. So there have been strong statements of denunciation from just about everybody you'd expect. The Canadians, the Brits, the Germans. I mean, you name them. They've denounced this. Except the United States, where nary a word has been said by President Trump except to criticize the EU, where nary a word has been said by, oh, I don't know, the Secretary of State, and where nary a word has been said by the Secretary of Defense. The only person who has said anything is Nikki Haley, the outgoing lame duck U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Well, at least she has said something, and uh, that continues a pattern of Nikki Haley being strong on on Russia issues, even when the rest of this administration has been complacent. That Nikki Haley is doing the big minimum to like survive I think it's it's a sign of where we not to survive but like that Nikki Haley is basically saying the minimum that she could say and be like the you know and and stands out as the you know the 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 flag waver right the sort of the alarm the 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 canary in the coal mine um, yeah, look, this tells is, us where we are. This is uh, this is another item on the uh, the long list of circumstances in which the administration has been 
for, for a U.S. administration, shall we say, uncharacteristically complacent in the face of Russian aggression. Uh, it'll not, be not just complacent, silent. Yeah, silent, acquiescent. So, so it'll be very interesting to see if that if that kind of uniformity maintains. In the past, in similar circumstances, we've seen the State Department uh, institutionally and individually Quite have slowly. have have much more of a traditional line. And I wouldn't be surprised if we do see that. Uh, well, ha- so you so we've talked before on this podcast, right, about the difference between um, Pompeo. Right as Secretary of State um, and and Rex Tillerson, right, yeah. and that and that you thought that it would be an asset, right, that everyone understand that Pompeo speaks with President Trump's ear and his support. Clearly, does when he speaks, and he's not speaking right now. Not yet. It'll be and thus I say it'll be interesting to see if Pompeo at some point comes out in a more aggressive way. Um, interesting, the State Department spokesperson Heather Nauert, who is widely touted and has been, and this has been much criticized, I think, rather unfairly. She's been widely touted as a potential replacement for Nikki Haley as ambassador to the UN. Um, I, I get it that from an experiential viewpoint, you might say that, that you know you don't think a spokesperson put him in that role. Look, um, at this point, I think the track record with Heather Nauert, where she has been very persistently or conspicuously uh, critical of the Russians yeah. and much more of a traditionalist from an American national security and foreign policy perspective, uh, gives me a lot of reason to trust her in that role, to, to play a role similar to what Nikki Haley has as sort of a New York-based counterpoint with a more traditional take on foreign policy. Uh, she hasn't said anything yet, obviously, but I would not be surprised if we see a statement from her that's strong on this. Yeah, but it's Tuesday. Yeah, well, you know, she does have a statement this morning that uh, takes up a related issue I want to flag for y'all. Um, can, can I say one thing about Heather Nauert before we move yeah, on? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I want to be clear. Like, I, in a perfect world, I would have concerns about Heather Nauert's lack of experience and whether that made her a qualified, nom- you know, successor. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to the rest of this Fakakta administration, yeah. like, you know, she's fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's a grown-up. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, no, I th- actually, I've been very impressed uh, with what I've seen so far, at least in the context of public statements, in an environment where, as you point out, the White House clearly isn't on board. She's still been forward-leaning. So, so let me just say one last thing, because I just, I can't resist it, and then, and then, and then I'll, you should segue, because you're not going to want to respond to what I'm about to say, um, <laughs> which is, I am not one of those who buys the whole, like, Russia has compromise on Trump, and, like, you know, Trump is deep into cahoots with either Putin or Russian organized gangsters or both. Like, I am not all the way there on the Trump conspiracy theory, Mm -hmm. but every time something like this happens, where Russia does something that is clearly not in our interests, right, that is a threat to international order, peace, and security, and that any other prior administration, Democratic or Republican, would have quickly and vehemently denounced, and Trump sits on his Twitter fingers, you know, it, it doesn't help resist that conspiracy theory. Yeah, so that's interesting. So my view of this, I, obviously, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, in fact, they have compromising financial and other leverage on him. Uh, that that seems quite possible given the business dealings. I hope we learn more through his tax returns, okay. as we should have learned long before he was elected president, uh, thanks to the uh, House being in uh, Democratic hands in the spring. We'll find out. Um, but I also think that it's overdetermined. In the following sense, I think that it actually Ooh, You is, haven't said that in a while. Overdetermined. I, I like saying that, as you know. Um, I think it's overdetermined in the specific sense that Trump's foreign policy positions, uh, first of all, his inclination yeah. to be rather uh, congenial towards authoritarian and, and sh- what he perceives to be strong uh, leaders, I think that inclines him not to see, you know, he doesn't he didn't see this as potentially a problem because he doesn't particularly care about the Ukraine, doesn't really mind if the Russians are throwing their weight around. Um, I think if anything, he might actually kind of admire it in some sort of sick way. And then and then related to that, um, when you look at the way he is sometimes much more uh, resistant with China, it reflects what I actually think is the the one sort of like clearly documented long term sort of policy preference he's got in foreign affairs. It's white people over non white people. N- Oh, that was not what I was going to say. Uh, no, what I was going to say is that he has a long track record as a mercantilist, as somebody who has this sort of like old-fashioned view of, of world trade as a zero-sum game. He views the Chinese as a threat in that respect. He does not view the Russians in, 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 insofar as if that were the right lens, which it isn't. That would be a reasonable way to look at it. So he gives he doesn't really put he doesn't really invest in pushing back against the Russians, whereas he does with the Chinese to uh, to a limited and ultimately self harmful, poorly implemented extent. But so your point about the sort of what how things are going to change when the house flips on, in January. Yeah. I mean, everything we've talked about so far in this episode, right, is ripe for interesting house oversight 
hearings and discussion and drama. Oh yeah, um, they'll be busy. There's no but, doubt so, about so that. So before you segue, I want to yeah. say one thing. So that um, you know, there's been this whole thing about the House Judiciary Committee subpoenaing Jim Comey to testify. Um, oh right, and he doesn't he's want to, testify. He only wants to testify publicly. Right, and they want right, and there's and like they're like you know, public hearings don't get anything done. I'm like, uh, you are the people who brought us Benghazi, right? I mean, come on. So the House Judiciary Committee testify, uh, testify tweeted yesterday. Comey had plenty of time for public appearances between his book tour and TV talk shows. This isn't showtime. It's congressional oversight to ensure there's accountability of the decisions that were made by the DOJ in 2016. And my response is, how about accountability for 2017 and 2018? Or, or is that not your job, House Judiciary Committee? So that was tweeted? Yes. Like the official account? Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure, House, Judi- you know, House Judiciary. The, I will say, you know, we've seen across the board more and more sort of... Partisan. It, no, well, yeah, that, but what I'm... I think that's not new. What's new is Wait, these, no, no, no. It's I, new to I, it's new to have. I have a point I'm trying to make, and okay. the point was not that. The point I was trying to make was that the rhetoric that obviously the 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 White House leads with the comically sort of uh, it's a casual and sort of like sort of uh, I don't even know how to, I don't have adjectives to describe this, but this casual style that's used that's sort of a, a, a kind of a lowbrow, yeah. sort of flashy way of talking about things that looks nothing like how government normally speaks. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to start seeing that spreading because what you just described to me, that sort of like zinger, sort of trolling yeah. way of describing things. It's personal, not institutional. Yeah, yeah. It's, so uh, so, it's so unfortunate. Someone, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember who pointed this out, but someone pointed this out about six months ago that across a wide range of of government social media accounts, you were seeing the Trumpification. There you where, go. That's where, exactly it. Where it where it's not just the rhetoric sort of being like dumbed down, but also listen, it's no it's nothing new that uh, a House or Senate committee, right, or that the White House or an executive branch agency is going to be touting their policies, right, and that those policies are going to have course. a partisan bent. What is new is casting everything overtly. As partisan, right? That you know, where you have the administrator of Medicare and Medicaid, for example, right, attacking particular Democrats on you know on partisan grounds as opposed to policy grounds. Yeah, this is deeply unsettling. And, I mean, and, that's a very frightening. And it's a race to the bottom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, right, because I have I have no illusions that it somehow just all snaps back to to whatever counts as normal. Of course not. Um, so I, I'd mentioned Heather Nauert, and she did have something to say today that relates to Russia. She had a statement out uh, denouncing uh, the surprise decision by the Hungarians to send a, uh, a Russian uh, international arms dealer, Vladimir uh, Liubishin, and his son, who were uh, under indictment and wanted by the United States for having attempted to do a deal to send significant weaponry to Mexican cartels. This apparently, from what I can gather online, so the details are sketchy at the moment, but it appears to have been a joint uh, American and Hungarian law enforcement investigation playing out for some time. These guys have been detained in Hungary where they've been living uh, for, I think, a couple of years, and they're expected to be extradited. And lo and behold, uh, the Orban administration has sent them back to Russia, where, of course, they will never be prosecuted, or at least not not fairly prosecuted in a way that would might actually convict them. Um, so there's a statement denouncing this and expressing surprise at it. Um, so the Russia account continues to be significant for its neighbors. And, and you see the spreading influence of authoritarianism perhaps there as well. Uh, litigation updates. So you had some you have some uh, insights about the, the recent decisions and actions of the Solicitor General, Noel Francisco. So it, it's been a very strange time at the Supreme Court. I mean, right, the, the court is gearing into its term, lots of stuff going on, you know, regular caseload. But we've seen this remarkable uptick in a combination of applications for emergency and or extraordinary relief from the Solicitor General. And let me sort of just sort of draw the distinction between those two things. So when we say emergency relief, what we're basically talking about is a stay, right, where the government or any party, I mean, this is not, these these, these procedures are not available only to the government, it's just usually the government is most successful in invoking them. Um, emergency relief is, dear higher court, you know, something really bad is happening in the lower court and we can't wait for the ordinary right. process to fix it, we need you to put it on hold. Um, and so that's where you'll see, for example, um, the government or some other party going to the Supreme Court or a Court of Appeals and asking for a stay of the effect of a lower court ruling while it's appealed. That of itself, Bobby, not that unusual. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but it's also not unheard of. Okay. Um, what we've seen a real uptick over the last year in is requests not just for emergency relief from the Solicitor General, but for extraordinary relief. Now, extraordinary relief is distinguished from emergency relief, where what the government is asking for is for the Supreme Court to jump over a court of appeals. 
Um, and sometimes that's coupled with emergency relief, like we want to stay and yeah. extraordinary relief. And the two mechanisms through which this happens is a writ of mandamus, um, which is, you know, for non-lawyer people out there, um, a fancy way of obtaining appellate review where there's no direct mechanism to do it. Um, so mandamus is basically how you get an appeals court to look at what a lower court's doing at a point in the case where you couldn't otherwise appeal what's going on. Um, or where you get an uh, even higher court to look at a district court. Um, and then cert before judgment. This is when a case, the government takes an appeal, or any party takes an appeal, to a court of appeals, but before the court of appeals can decide the thing, they go to the Supreme Court and say, we want you to take this case now. So we've seen in the last year, but especially the last month, um, a, a, a really surprising uptick in petitions for mandamus and or cert before judgment from the Supreme Court, culminating, I think, visibly, Bobby, in all the stuff that's going on with the census litigation right now, mm -hmm. but in our universe, um, culminating last Friday with a petition for cert before judgment in all three of the government's pending appeals challenging, um, well, arising out of the so-called Mattis policy, um, the uh, limitations the government put on service by transgendered individuals in the U.S. military. Are these all coming out of one circuit? Are no. Are these like all attempts to avoid the ninth so, circuit? So this is where, I mean, I, I got into a huge, huge fight on Twitter last week in the middle of Thanksgiving um, about the ninth circuit. So President Trump went on this whole anti-ninth circuit rant last week um, after he lost that asylum case. Mind you, not in the ninth circuit, but in the district court. Right, yeah, right. To, but to California, to be, court, right? Right, it was all the same. Right. Um, in fact, the transgender ban, one of the cases is in the Ninth Circuit, but one is in, I think, um, Maryland, um, and I think one is in D.C. All right, so D.C., Fourth Circuit, Ninth Circuit, are the panels assigned? Is this just an attempt to avoid what looks like an unfriendly lineup in the particular judges who, at the circuit level, were likely to rule on those matters? So the government says no, right? The government says that the real reason why they're in such a hurry is because they want a decision on the merits from the Supreme Court by the end of this term, um, and that in order to do that, they have to have the Supreme Court grant certiorari by January, mid-January, basically, um, argue the, the case in April. So that's where I'm stuck, right? So, like, I understand it's always the case, right, that if you think that you, if you think that the, the district court decision that where you lost, because let's be clear, the government lost all of these cases in the district court, mm -hmm. um, and in at least three of them, the district courts imposed nationwide injunctions against the so-called Mattis policy. So, obviously, whenever you lose, right, you want to win on appeal as fast as possible. Sure. I understand that. Yeah. That is not a justification of itself for extraordinary Right, there relief. has to be some independent external reason that the time's of the essence. So the government says um, in the transgender ban cases that um, its inability to implement the Mattis policy is directly interfering with the military's ability to carry out its critical constitutional functions. Oh, that sounds like a bunch of baloney. But it's, it's in the briefs. It's in the, no, it's, I know. That just sounds ridiculous. I mean, listen. Wait, they're, they're saying that the inability to force out these service members is, is in some way uh, impairing military effectiveness? Yes. Oh, come on. And lethality. They literally say lethality. No, that's, that's just ridiculous. So I, 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 I agree. But, and, then, so, and then at the end of the brief, what they cite as support for how in cases involving sensitive diplomatic or military affairs, cert before judgment's often appropriate. See Youngstown and Dames and Moore. <laughs> so here's... He, uh, the, so it's like the same as steel seizure. Come on. So listen, here's what's complicated to me. Of all, there, there are four different contexts where this kind of stuff is happening right now. There's the fight over DACA, um, where the government's trying to get the Supreme Court to sort of jump over. I mean, it's too late now because the Ninth Circuit has ruled, but where the government had been trying to get the Supreme Court to jump over the Ninth Circuit on whether the effort to rescind DACA was legal. Um, there's the Juliana climate change case in Oregon, which I think is the one where the government actually has the strongest argument that they've got a district judge who is messing with them. Um, like, that to me is the strongest candidate. Um, there's the census litigation where the government keeps running back to the Supreme Court, even though all that's happening is an ordinary trial and the fight is over the scope of the record. Like, if the, if the record was too broad, that is the classic kind of error you just fix on appeal. So what do you and think? There, and now there's yeah. the transgender ban. So what's going on here? Obviously, there's obviously there's a belief at some level that their best odds are with the Supreme Court. Is this just sort of a uh, a product of the fact that we've had so much attention to the court yeah. because of the nominations and this sort of sense that aha, now we've got a more a more locked in majority there. So let's just get as much of the important high profile stuff to that court where we're 
just confident that'll be the end of it? Is it as simple as that, just trying to trying to win fast? I, I mean, if it is, it's incredibly myopic because it, it's often – the Solicitor General is often referred to as the 10th justice. Um, there's no lawyer who has more important than the court than the Solicitor General. There's a long-standing view that the Solicitor General has institutional obligations and responsibilities, not just to the Justice Department and the White House, but to the court as an officer of the court, as the leading officer of the court. Um, and, you know, listen, the, the Supreme Court, there is no party that has more success at the Supreme Court than the Solicitor General. So, and so, yeah. so, right, so, so I think I, my sense of what's happening here is Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, has made a conscious decision to take the credibility and the institutional prestige and the power of his office and use it in this incredibly disruptive way. Now, the question is why? Um, and I have to say, like, my gut, I have no basis for this belief other than just, <laughs> you know, outside. Fire away. Um, I suspect he's under a lot of pressure from the White House. Um, right, that you know, Noel is a savvy lawyer. I think Noel understands the danger of spending and expending the Solicitor General's precious credibility with the justices, and I think this might be his way of you know, sort of not you know, as opposed to sort of maybe making arguments he doesn't think are legally plausible, jumping yeah. the queue in a way to try to sort of satisfy the shouting he's receiving from the White House. Interesting. So, so you're saying that he he maybe knowingly. Burning down his or spending out his capital. Not, it's not court. his capital. Well, the office's capital. That's important. the capital of the office in which he currently occupies. Yeah. He may be spending down either simply like there's one account that's just direct pressure. Uh, another account would be that no, he just he wants to he wants to use it on his own watch. Uh, and the third account, which you hinted at there or you said there, is that he may be trading this off to avert what we don't see, but otherwise might be otherwise difficult to resist pressures to make more unappealing, worse arguments than are than are being made, which is a very interesting. Well, it may never know, at least not until much later on, whether that's the case. But that's fascinating. And, and, and it's also interesting from the court's perspective, because this puts the court in a pretty pickle. Because on the one hand, the court insists time and again on regular order, yeah. um, that it's a court of, of review, not first view. All of these procedures for extraordinary relief, if you look at the rules, it's literally written into the rules that these procedures are disfavored. Um, so what we've seen so far in the cases that have produced at least preliminary orders and judgments um, is sympathy for the government from Justices Gorsuch and Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, and in one of the cases, Justice Alito, but nothing from yeah. the chief or Kavanaugh. Which makes sense if you accept, as I think both of us do, that they are institutionalists to a degree that the others are not. Are not. I agree. The question is whether that um, equipoise can hold. So, for yeah. example, in the census case, um, rather than grant any of the government's crazy requests for extraordinary relief, the court ended up treating the government's request for extraordinary relief as an ordinary petition for certiorari, mm. granting it, putting it on the merits docket, and setting an argument for February as a way of sort of, I think, yeah, diffusing and yeah, dodging. Yeah. Um, that's not in the transgender cases. Like that's not going to work. They're either going to have to grant cert before judgment or not. And the question is whether at some point the chief has to say something. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, you could say something by simply not not taking these cases yeah. and making it clear that this doesn't really work, except in a handful of periodic. But cases. like, I mean, all it would take, all it would take is like a, a three sentence opinion concurring in the denial of one of these and requests, reaffirming the need for it to be extremely exactly you know like, exigent right, circumstances right. without without yeah. expressing any view of the merits. But a know. shot across the bow. I, I mean, he, yeah, I he sent one. He sent one toward President Trump last week. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, I think, and I think it might be time for him to send one toward the SG. Absolutely, that's super interesting. Okay, so we will watch that yeah. story as it unfolds. We'll kind of get drips and drabs. Any one decision won't prove anything, but the pattern of it over time might. Um, all right. So speaking of litigation updates, a few National Security Division mm. uh, criminal prosecution updates. Uh, I'm going to note three really recent developments in terrorism-related cases, one involving uh, a woman named uh, Zubia Shanaz of New York, who just pled guilty to providing the Islamic State with material support. This was based on a, a pretty remarkable series of financial frauds involving not just credit cards, but bogus loan applications, converting stuff to Bitcoin, and ultimately shipping off about 150000 or so in cash or Bitcoin or God knows what, to the Islamic State or to accounts linked to them. And then she tried to go to Syria and got nabbed at the airport. So she just pled guilty. Probably will get 20 years. Uh, uh, Adam Raishani, also of New York, also pled guilty to providing the Islamic State with material support. 
In his case, he first helped an as yet unnamed co-conspirator get overseas to join and fight with the Islamic State back in 2015. And then in 2017, he uh, began working on trying to do it himself. Uh, interesting sort of note to the story. He, he was abandoning his wife and young child to do this and uh, left instructions for his wife. Uh, in addition to disappointment that she didn't seem persuaded to join him, uh, he did encourage her to make sure to tell everyone that don't believe stories about me going to join the Islamic State. Tell people I was going overseas to do volunteer health work. Uh, finally, uh, Amor uh, Fatuhi of Canada has been convicted, I believe, in a bench trial. Um, could have been a jury trial, but convicted at any rate on a trio of charges involving terrorism. Uh, this guy uh, had gone to Flint, Michigan in 2017, went to the airport uh, and stabbed a police officer in the neck twice. He had tried to buy a gun, had been unsuccessful, could only get himself a knife. Uh, and he had done all this in sort of the, uh, the name of, or at least in saying he was inspired by Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden's views. Uh, and so he's been convicted as well. That no doubt will be a life sentence in the end. All right, um, there's there's other stuff, but let's let's move on and just kind of wrap with a substantive review of Spencer Ackerman's interesting story in the Daily Beast. Uh, it ran on Sunday night. It was a piece titled "Trump Ramped Up Drone Strikes in America's Shadow Wars." Uh, and what's going on here is is Spencer's uh, accumulated a bunch of data, both from CENTCOM. Uh, and from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which tries to track drone strikes. Uh, and it's kind of pulled it all together and done a really interesting comparison and contrast, uh, both collectively and in particular regions, comparing you know the pace of known drone strikes for under the Trump administration in its first two years, which we are now wrapping up, uh, and both the Obama administration in general and Obama's first two years, uh, he points out that you know Obama acquired quite a reputation uh, as if he were drone happy because of the uptick in drone strikes during his time. Uh, though the pattern actually was an early spike, uh, largely due to Pakistan, and then more of a downward trend. And he said that you know Trump's basically done the exact same thing—an early spike and somewhat of a downward trend. But no one ever talks about it. There's there are no major public narratives underway regarding. Trump and the use of force and counterterrorism in general. Uh, we've talked about this before in this show. There is this exhaustion, uh, sort of a, a, a satiation with that topic that finally came into being after four prior presidential terms. But more importantly, there's the, the Trump-landia stories that consume all the oxygen in the room, plus new national security stories that are fresh and more compelling about cybersecurity and things like that. And so the terrorism stories, the 9-11 guat type stories just disappear. And I applaud Spencer for drawing attention back to these topics. Um, some interesting data in, in mentions in the article. Uh, I'll highlight a few. In Yemen, uh, quote, the spring 2017 drone spree uh, coincided with the targeting focus on al-Qaeda by the Saudis and Emiratis, who with U.S. support are waging a devastating war on Yemen. Afterwards, <coughs> that is, after uh, 2017, Neither Saudi Arabia nor the United Arab Emirates has prioritized al-Qaeda, and their coalition has reportedly cut deals with those fighters against mutual foes in Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi movement. Close quote. Um, basically, what he's pointing out here is like we, for a while there, we're doing lots of drone strikes and airstrikes against uh, AQAP targets, and that's not happening much anymore. No one's really talking about that. Uh, even though there's quite a story there insofar as what's going on is that interest in suppressing AQIP maybe has been subordinated to the uh, larger Trump administration policy of supporting the Saudis and the UAE in their uh, counter Houthi, counter Iran activities there. That, that, I think it's a huge story and that doesn't get any attention. Uh, Pakistan, quote, in Pakistan, drone strikes against suspected al-Qaeda targets declined every year since Obama's 2010 high watermark of 128, dropping to three in 2016. Trump launched five in 2017, only one in 2018, close quote. Um, this underscores something that those of us who follow the area know, but no one ever talks about. It. And it's just extraordinary to what extent the drone story has, has declined in Pakistan. And to some extent, that's a story of the changing diplomacy and the changing politics of Pakistan. To some extent, it's a story of the changing threat matrix, uh, the extent to which the remaining target uh, base in, in Pakistan. It's not what it used to be. And uh, though Ayman al-Zawahiri and some other senior original core al-Qaeda leadership are still out there, um, their centrality in the, in the Islamic State world uh, that we now have, it's just not what it used to be. Uh, Somalia, quote, 
The Trump administration is still waging a more aggressive drone campaign in the East African country than his predecessor, to minimal attention. Trump presided over 35 strikes in Somalia in 2017. That's two and a half times Obama's 14 in 2016, and it eclipsed in that single year the 33 strikes undertaken during Obama's entire tenure. Close quote. Uh, Spencer notes quite properly that uh, part of this surely reflects the Trump administration's decision uh, in early 2017 or spring 2017 to cap to recategorize Somalia as an area of active hostilities, which meant it was no longer subject to the original uh, PPG rules from the Obama administration, uh, presidential policy guidance, which were restrictive, uh, not forbidding, but restrictive on targeting outside of the recognized areas of active hostilities like Iraq and Syria and, and Afghanistan. Um, I would note that Obama himself, towards the end of his administration, November 2016, uh, more than foreshadowed that change when he uh, chose at final long last to designate al-Shabaab as a full-fledged associated force of al-Qaeda for AUMF purposes, um, though this, the, the ensuing uh, uptick in counter al-Shabaab strikes didn't uh, really take off until Trump. Um, there's more in the stuff than the article. There's interesting stuff about Libya. Um, the bottom line question is how to judge it all. Um, there's some quotes in the article from a former general talking about how, uh, in effect, this is my words, not his, but in effect, this looks a lot like just sort of uh, autopilot lawn mowing, just taking out the militants where you can, but not making any progress on the strategic plane towards solving larger problems. Uh, I think that that could be the case. It also could be the case that there there is no realistic solution that's within the realistic reach of the United States uh, to solve those larger problems. And the, and if that's true, then a hard question arises. So do you do you not do that lawn mowing? Do you not continue to use lethal force against uh, violent extremists where you can and where you can't otherwise detain them? Or do you instead uh, stop that and live whatever those consequences might be? Um, we've had uh, basically two decades now, nearly, of doing the lawn mowing. Uh, and I realize that's a harsh phrase, uh, but it's one that's sometimes used in, in people who follow this topic to describe this idea that you're just sort of uh, on the hamster wheel of using lethal force against an ever-replenishing crop of extremists. Um, but we don't actually know what it would look like currently in the past two decades if we just stopped doing that and it's an it's a deeply interesting and important question no one seems to talk about anymore huh seems like a job for the house armed services committee uh, it's a job for lots and lots of people certainly including uh the, the legislature and i guess we'll we'll see whether that's going to be on the agenda for uh house foreign affairs yep. and in house armed services like yep. foreign affairs even more so probably yeah i mean I just i i think it's a yet another example of how because we don't really have national debates over the war powers, and because none of these cases end up in court, yeah, they just you know it's you know out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and, and so to some extent, th this goes to the agenda-setting power to the extent that it remains of journalists when they're when they're in the White House press room, yeah. when they're in uh, you know press briefings with Mattis and others, um, and, and pressing to try to get press statements out of, of CIA insofar as they can uh, to come back to this theme. Um, you know, I read a lot of these uh, press transcripts, and you know, general. Guat type issues, war on terrorism issues. Uh, they don't tend to get asked about a lot, and nope. maybe they need to be. Yep. All right. Uh, we're we're too busy asking about deploying troops to the border. To the well, exactly, exactly. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, you can't whack all the moles. Speaking of frivolity, uh, yeah, we've got we've got some. This is a thing some people feel passionate about, my friend. Uh, love actually. Is it actually wonderful? Is it actually horrible? What camp are you in? Yes. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Yes. Okay. What What's good? What's bad? So I love I, I love the movie right as a cinematic experience as a sort of fun holiday romp right. It's a great. I I am generally a sucker for all things British, especially movies like you know, this one's this one's tailor made to appeal. You got all of our favorite sort of uh, British actors. Yep. Uh, you know everyone you can think of. And is even in there. You can't. Yeah, including if you can't. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I, I, it's fun, it's entertaining, it's great, it's well conceived. Um, at the risk of being a spoil sport, right? Um, if you actually sit back and think about it, it's kind of dark. Some some of the stories, several of them, are very dark, and not just dark, no, but so, some knowingly so, and some maybe not knowingly. Exactly, so. and some are dark, and some are dark in ways that are very 
how shall I say, um, gendered, right? So if you think about like the power dynamics that inhere in each, not each of the relationships, so like the, you know, the stand-ins, um, the, the nude stand-ins, they don't have that weird power dynamic, right? But <laughs> right, the nude stand-ins, definitely, yeah. Right, but but like, you know, the prime minister and his assistant. I mean, definitely it's sort of right? a uh, Bill Clinton, Monica right? Lewinsky sort Alan, of... Alan Rickman thing. and his assistant, right? Yeah. Cheating on Emma Thompson, right? You know, I mean, like it's... There's just, it's um, uh, Colin Firth and the maid. Although, so to come back to the Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson one, which involves, <laughs> to, to my mind, the, the two best actors yeah, yeah. In, in the deal. By far. Um, that's one where it it's framed as the, the reluctant affair on the part of the boss who's not aggressively pursuing the worker. Whereas um, the prime minister one's a little more ambiguous, perhaps, on that dimension. Yeah, but it's, you know, like almost all of the relationships that are interesting in the movie are relationships where a female subordinate, right, is somehow entangled in some kind of inappropriate um, romance with a male superior. Right, there's not one, and then and then there's, there's Colin no, Firth and his maid, there's not one in which there's a powerful the, woman in it. Right, yeah. like, like at, at best you get like people on par with each other. Yeah. Like the, the nude stand-ins. Yeah, I who think... Who are so cute. Well, I think the, uh, the no doubt the, the writers and producers would say, look, we're, we're kind of capturing a snapshot oh, of what know, actually goes like, on. You know, really? I mean, love actually is a realistic snapshot of what actually goes on? On this dimension? Are you, are you saying that we're missing all the cases where women are abusing their power to seduce? No, I'm just saying, like, you know, I, so, so the problem is that, like, it's one of those movies that I love until I think about it. Like, you know, there are movies, I, there are movies and TV shows I can just sit in front of the TV and watch, right, as long as I don't try to, like, Law & Order is a good example of this. Like, when I'm trying to, like, work in front of the TV and I just need something mindless on in front of me, Law & Order is great because it's entertaining, it's tightly packed. I just can't think about it too much because if I think about it, I'll, I'll, it'll occur yeah, to me. Well, that'll, that'll, that'll ruin most uh, short form, yeah. uh, even some long form fiction. Um, what are your favorite things you do love, though, of the plot line? If you had to pick like two or three of the plot lines, I'll, I'll tell you some of mine. Like, yeah. I, I love the whole Billy Mac bit. Everything about <laughs> Bill Nye. But even that, the, wait, but even that, his relationship with his manager is super awkward. Well, it's, it's supposed to be super awkward, I right? I, th- I think, it actually, so I kind of appreciate this idea that um, they're, they're gesturing towards different kinds of love, at least a little bit. Yeah. Mostly it's not. It's mostly romantic. But there's this this love of deep friendship that, that they express that's pretty cool. And But just, it's, you know, the, his whole character is hilarious. Um, I, I really like, even though call, it's the most... Call him, call him the sex god? <laughs> call him the sex god. That guy's I forget that actor's name. He's pretty funny. Um, that's realistic. And yeah, well, uh, th- that one was clearly designed to be hyperbole, right? And especially his journey to America, everything about that's meant to be farce. Um, I think that the Emma Thompson and uh, you know the the whole bit with the affair is is so powerful, yeah, and yeah. and I and I appreciate it. in a movie right that's, down to the Joni Mitchell. Well, in a, in a movie that's uh, largely kind of treats things really surface like, yeah. just unabashedly pr- yeah. portrays you know the harm that yep. he caused. Um, the the friend who's in love with Kira Knightley, right, who stands outside the the door with yeah. the signs. So that's actually the one that bugs me the most, <laughs> right? Like, what the like, hell kind of friend is he? Okay, so now I feel like we've had this conversation. before. Before, yeah, I, I think we have probably. Well, you know, yeah, it's holiday season. It's time for reruns. And then, and then she runs out there and gives him the big kiss, like, "Oh, that was awesome! Thanks. Here's your big kiss." I, everything about that is is bothersome. Really? So John Cusack standing in the driveway holding the radio over his head. Are we doing say anything I'm now? Just, I'm just saying, like, that, isn't that the same? Isn't, it's it's a, it's a comparable moment. I right? say there, there's a thin line between that kind of devotion and and being really creepy. Um, there's a thin line between <laughs> devotion and creep. There's no question about that. Um, I think that Rowan Atkinson playing the sort of the angel who delays things is both funny and kind of a, a sweet idea. That the intervention to try to stop this fool Alan Rickman from ruining his marriage and in this wonderful life, and as Emma Thompson puts it, making a fool out of out of her and, and the life they lead. Um, the closing montage is my favorite part, where they show what I assume are real scenes of real people in the mm-hmm, airport, mm-hmm. all sorts of scenes of people yeah. that that thing that we've all seen a million times but it's really great to have it isolated and shown to you like look at how much love there is in the airport which is funny because most of us go in the airport and we're not noticing that we're, we're just mad about the slow person in line in front of us at the tsa check seriously have you never flown before <laughs> yeah right i mean that's it's mainly a negative experience it's great to be to be reminded that when you when you're coming out of the plane you're heading down the jetway and then you get out of security and you're just trying to get out of there and you're kind of irritated from the flight Notice that there's almost always like somebody sitting there so excited and so happy to see somebody. That's that's nice. And we could use more niceness like that. Yes, we could. Yep. All right. Well, on that, I guess, uplifting note. 
I certainly hope so. Stay safe out there. Adios.